0: Activia helps support a healthy gut. Your gut is where it all begins.
1: Platforms.
2: You're listening to Real Health with me, Carl Henry, in association with Activia. Activia offers a range of yogurts that help support a healthy gut. Your gut is where it all begins. Hello and welcome to Real Health with me, Carl Henry. Folks, on this episode, we're going to take a look at nutrition with a compilation of clips from our top three episodes. To kick us off, here's HSE Clinical Lead for Obesity, Professor Donald O'Shea, talking about the importance of knowing the calorie content of the foods that we eat.
1: I went to New York in 2010 or 2011 to have a look at how they were doing right, that uh, was, that calorie was for, That
2: was for the TV show, wasn't it? That was, that. For, yeah, yeah, that was for Transformation. Operation yeah. Transformation.
1: A, a lovely trip. And two things happened on that trip. Uh, the New York City Department of Health um, the the head of that said to me, yeah, calorie posting is good because it works. Uh, so, you know, push for it. But if you can get a sugar tax in, that would be even better. So I came back from that trip kind of with two agendas uh, that the calories and menu boards has been, it, you know, it works mm-hmm. and uh, it's proven to work. It's proven to impact by about 100 calories per purchase for 30% of people who are looking at the menu. That's a massive, huge reach. At population level, genuinely, only vaccination would have that kind of population reach as a health measure. So this is something that works. We've had ministers after ministers say, we will legislate, it will be the law of the land. And uh, we're still sitting here hearing that it's been shelved. Uh, And, you know, for me, that's a quick win, Uh, get it done, get it done properly uh, for 90% of restaurants and 70% of their offerings. Uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to apply to specials uh, and, and it doesn't have to apply necessarily to uh, sole traders as restaurants. And, but, and
2: nor does it have to be 100% accurate. It can be a ballpark. Exactly. Because I know one of the big pushbacks in industry is the fact that it's the cost of getting it counted up. It's the cost of it's, it's Even if it's 80% accurate or close enough to accurate, it'll have, And even myself, if I go to. Uh, get a burger randomly, which sometimes we absolutely, yeah, absolutely. do. That's normal. Yeah. There's uh, a couple of the fast food restaurants who have put their calories on the menus in yeah. the restaurants and in the drive-throughs, and even for someone who's in the industry, you, it absolutely impacts your decision. Or if the burger has 500 calories or 600 calories, you'll know that across the rest of your day you have a deficit to, in some okay. respects, to allow for, not to allow for that, but you know what I mean yeah. to, to have it as a and enjoy it.
1: Yeah, and you'll 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 have the burger, and I think it's like you'd say, but right, the portion of fries that's got either I can go four hundred and forty calories or six hundred and sixty yep. calories, so go the four hundred and forty, and you just it just influences your your decision making, and and I think. The other thing that the New York Department of Health were were strong on is it is the conversation on the road to introducing it that's important. So we have been discussing this in Ireland for the last 12 years. Um, And and that brings with it awareness of the fact that energy in is important. uh, The amount of calories you consume is important and you'd like to know it. And the degree to which the food and drinks industry oppose us finding out what's in what we eat. I mean, they don't want us to know. And they are opposed to front of label, uh, front of pack food labeling, which the consumers, 95% of consumers want, because the more information we have, the more they will have to modify what they're putting into it. And that kind of reformulation, that's where the sugar tax won. When the sugar tax was introduced, apart from the money it's raising, all of the major uh, drinks companies uh, introduced uh, sugar-free uh, varieties, yeah. and you suddenly had people going in able to, uh, you know, have one of their favoured products and uh, zero sugar, close to zero calories.
2: Chat to me about weight and the impacts of weight. Okay, so I know it, it's my job, it's, yeah. all, I, I, it's the world they live in and the, the world I, I, I deal with from a work perspective. But, you know, we talk about weight for a reason, which is the fact that by being obese, and, and we have a few issues with that, the weight's become very normal, so that one stone overweight is now normal, two stone overweight is now pretty much normal. Yeah. But by being obese, so the more overweight you are, you're at a higher risk of, pretty much everything in terms of health-related issues and health-related diseases and even in terms of the aging process and how we age, yeah. that we're aging less healthy or more unhealthy because of the fact that we're carrying more weight than we should.
1: Yeah, so I mean, the uh, the effects of, of weight are uh, they're mental, uh, they're physical, uh, they're financial, um, and uh, you... Uh, but the the and I think that the first and the most important really uh, is is that psychological effect. Uh, and and the seeds that are sown in the uh, adolescent or child who uh, has overweight or obesity, um and and the stigma and shame that they suffer. So if you have overweight and uh, from an early age, uh, that's the environment that you're living in. A few years ago, we started to bring patients to any talks we were doing. And I remember walking through Dublin Airport with a patient for the, for the first time and actually seeing the looks that she was getting and the comments and the looks I was getting for being with her. So the, the psychological uh, effects are, are massive, uh, the physical effects, uh, you know, there is there's that very physical, you know, it, the strain on your joints. Uh, but the inflammation that uh, goes hand in hand with excess adipose tissue uh, drives every disease. I mean, there's 220 diseases now that we know uh, are linked to uh, having uh, obesity or overweight. Uh the big ones we know about the diabetes, the hypertension that leads to heart disease. Uh, the cancer story is emerging, uh, you know, with more strength every single year. And it's 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 not just having cancer, but it's your ability to uh, respond to the treatments you get. Uh, one of the enc- really encouraging stories of, of COVID was after that fear with the first wave, where individuals who had obesity were really more susceptible to severe illness, uh, to getting into ICU and to dying, uh, either having COVID or ge- getting vaccinated uh, gave you fantastic protection uh, as an individual with obesity. And for with all previous um, vaccinations and pandemics, uh, the vaccines haven't worked in people with obesity. And uh, it's, it's amazing that it has been that effective.
2: Fad diets and bad information are a reality of the digital age that we live in. And with that in mind, here's a clip from a conversation I had with registered dietitian Sarah Kyo, where she busts some of the more common food myths that are out there. Enjoy.
0: So I hear, the biggest myth I hear about dairy is that it causes cancer. And I hear that a huge amount. And what's very interesting, if you go to the actual science on it, it, that's not there at all. And in fact, one of the big studies that we'd look at is one called EPIC, which is the European Prospective Investigation into Cancer, which is a good mouthful. So EPIC is the short version, but they have been tracking over half a million people across Europe for the last 30 years. And they're really delving into what are people eating? What cancers do they get? What type? This is, you know, what we've heard recently about processed red meat, and cancer, that's come out of this study. And this study is not finding links with dairy and cancer. And not only are they finding that it doesn't cause cancer, they've actually found that people drinking milk and eating cheese and yogurt are actually getting less bowel cancer um, than people who avoid them. And so they're, it's now, you know, we're nearly looking at milk as being quite good in terms of helping to prevent cancer. So, you know, I see lots of people worried about this and then they talk about hormones um, but you know although you can use hormones to produce dairy it's illegal to do so in the European Union. So if you're reading websites, say from the US, they will talk about the hormones, but in the EU it's not accurate. And the same for antibiotics, it's not in the milk or even in the meat in Europe. And it's just food legislation here is a little bit different. So there's lots of myths out there. I think the one that is scaring me a little bit at the moment is there's a lot of talk about acne and skin health for teenagers, which obviously, I mean, we, we I know I had my spots as my teenage years as well. Um, but I'm seeing people say, oh, cut out dairy. And this is such a crucial time for bone health for teenagers, where they actually need to be getting five servings of dairy um, a day. A day? A day well, at that as teen... It? Yeah, they just... You're going to put down 90% of your bones before you're 19 years old. Um, Talk me through servings. So serving would be one glass of milk, uh, one pot of yogurt, like, you know, the 120 gram mm-hmm. kind of pot, or about 30 grams of cheese, which is about the size of your two thumbs stuck together. So five of those a good day for teenagers. Um, and although there's been two studies that suggest, and I'll have to emphasize it like this, suggest dairy might affect skin acne they're really not definitive in any way at all Um, and if someone does want to try it they really need to replace that calcium which they're not doing so I'm really nervous about that as advice going out um, for that at the moment lots of other things I have to say I've worked in clinics over the years with um, teenagers with acne and there's lots of other places I would be starting long before you'd look at dairy as a cause of course everywhere
2: we look now there's a milk replacement so there's oat milk almond milk rice milk Uh, I'm sure there's some other ones I've missed but but every coffee shop you go into what milk would you like there's a huge growth in that area and it's, are, are people replacing it for taste or or do you think it's for a myth reasons that they, they read about there's it there's a
0: little bit of myth there's a little bit of taste there's a little bit of it's very fashionable at the moment mm. you know and we get a lot of that and I've seen all kinds of things over the years in what's fashionable in, in nutrition and um, and in fairness, with the milks, like with dairy, it's not the only place where you can get calcium. Um, but if someone is going for the plant based milks, they need to make sure the calcium has been added because the calcium, the plant based milks don't naturally have much in the way of calcium. So I've seen people and they've swapped onto another milk, but they haven't checked and suddenly their calcium levels have dropped and a real myth. And I find this one a bit nerve wracking as well, is that people say, well, I've had my blood calcium levels measured and they're fine. That is not a measure of your bone calcium. So you actually need to keep your blood calcium levels at a certain level to actually keep your heart beating. So your body works very hard to keep your blood calcium levels steady. So it's not like if you're low in B12 or, you know, a blood test for B12 is quite good or a blood test for vitamin D, but for calcium, not as reliable at all um, with that. So your body will actually be taking calcium out of your bones to keep your blood calcium level steady. Um, So with the plant-based milks, definitely check that they're calcium added. Um, Brilliant if they have vitamin D as well. The other thing I find most people don't know about dairy is that dairy is the major source of iodine in the Irish diet. Okay. So it's where we get most of our iodine and we need that for healthy thyroid, so metabolism, but it's also really important for brain development during pregnancy for the baby. And there's big concerns. We've always been a bit borderline on iodine in Ireland anyway, but now where people are not taking the dairy, it's a big drop. Now you can pick up some iodine in seaweed and you can pick up some iodine in whitefish, but yeah. um, but you've got to be Both careful the about we the seaweed. We don't we eat a whole a lot of them yeah. and um, suddenly eating seaweed in pregnancy is not, is very definitely not recommended either because it's too much iodine.
2: Um, so your dairy intake through pregnancy is really important.
0: <laughs> dairy intake through pregnancy as well for your own bones. Now, obviously, lots of people are on fully plant-based diets and you can absolutely get your calcium kind of from that. But I think people who are doing it because it's fashionable or trendy or they've read misinformation about it, that's what I'd love to see people not being afraid of dairy. There's nothing to be afraid of with it. OK, lovely. Second myth, veg, vegetables. <laughs> well, I think people have all kinds of ideas about vegetables. Um, we do need a certain amount, obviously, our vegetables every day. But what I'm seeing sometimes and I've seen it over the years in clinic is people thinking that you're you can just live on veg. All on their own like that in the sense of, you know, I've had people coming in with their hair falling out and really dry skin. And you're trying to explain that, you know, vegetables are one food group in a healthy Mm -hmm. diet. You still need your proteins and your fats and all those other things as well. So they're going to be a big part of it, too.
2: And of course, there are lots of claims every now and again of certain superfoods, mushrooms for being anti cancerous and tomatoes <laughs> and all this stuff. Reality is uh, the word "superfood"
0: doesn't is is a giveaway that I'm not sure there is necessarily a yeah. superfood. You know, if I was going to take a food as superfood, I'd probably talk about fish with it, but um, <laughs> I'll come back to that. But <laughs> in terms of, I suppose, with fruit and veg, every so often there's the new headline. Um, you know, blueberries are going to cure Alzheimer's, mushrooms are going to prevent cancer, whatever it is, and people then get very worried about, well, which fruit, which veg, what should I eat? Um, Um, and I suppose in particular I see poor bananas getting a really hard time for such a wonderful fruit. Um, There's no one fruit or veg that is going to save you from everything and what we know from the research is that you need a variety and the more different fruit and veg you can eat the more you get the mm-hmm. different compounds, the flavonoids and the polyphenols and all of those things. Um, and that's where your benefit comes in. And it actually doesn't matter whether they're raw or cooked. You know, sometimes people are like, everything has to be raw. Or yeah. if you put it in a smoothie, you have lost all the fiber. And it's mm-hmm. like you don't. You do lose the fiber in juice, but you don't lose the fiber from your smoothie.
2: Finally, how much do you know about the relationship between our brains and our gut? Well, many of us think we decide when and how much we eat, research now tells us that our brains have far more control over our eating habits than we might realize. So, what does this mean for how we understand obesity and what treatment is best for those who have the disease? Here is a snippet from a conversation with the expert in metabolic medicine and professor of experimental pathology at University College Dublin, Carel LaRue.
3: So a great example is if you look at small kids, you know, if you've got a two-year-old nephew or niece or, you know, two-year-old of your own, you will know that some days they will eat like horses, you know, they'll just consume anything. And other days, they'll be completely uninterested in food. And that is because their brains and the way that their brain regulates, um, you know, their body weight is perfectly controlled. So now, um, when they've had enough, They've had enough. And you know, there's nothing you can do to coerce them into eating. And that just allows us to understand how powerful the brain is. Now, of course, as we grow older, we are eating for different reasons. It's more social, you know, and hence, you know, some of those we can overrule, right? But um, again, that still maintains in the long term. And that's why some people can eat whatever they want. Don't put on any weight because they eat smaller amounts of it, and they just stop earlier because they feel satisfied
2: and people who have obesity then mm. so and who will who overeat is that a, as a result of the brain just not get the person not being able to to, to, to get that messaging from the brain? Or is there external factors, you know, distracted eating and,
3: and all all of those kind of things. So if you think about how you regulate the temperature inside your house, you know, you think about you know your temperature inside the house is controlled by the energy in and the energy out. You know, so how you know your boiler is working, for example, and how good your double glazing is, or how many windows are open. And so therefore, if you want to increase the temperature in your house, the idea would be is you close all the windows and you turn the boiler up, right? Or if you wanna decrease the temperature, you would open the windows and you turn the boiler down. That's quite a cumbersome way, and actually none of us do that, because all that we do if we want to increase the temperature inside our house is we just increase the thermostat. You go somewhere in my house it's in the kitchen and I just turn it up. I said, I would like my house to be 25 degrees Celsius instead of 20 degrees Celsius. And this is the way you need to think about the brain. So we now understand that obesity is not about energy in or energy out. That's the old way of thinking about it. And that way hasn't helped us much. Um, But now we understand that the brain is like the thermostat. And therefore, if your thermostat is set at 25 Celsius, then your boiler is going to work much harder and you're going to take much more energy in. But if we can turn your thermostat down, so it only operates at 20 degrees Celsius, now your boiler doesn't have to work so hard. So therefore, you're not eating as much. So thinking about it in another way, in the old days, we thought that overeating caused obesity. And therefore, we really tried to help people to eat less. That did not work. Now we understand that the disease of obesity makes people overeat. So, if we treat the disease, what happens is people naturally eat less food, and that is why it is so simple and straightforward for them.
2: A fascinating chat so far. I love chatting about chat obesity all day long. I'm fascinated by it. I'm intrigued by it. I love the. I love the fact that the world around it is changing which I think is so important from a science perspective and to get the message out to, there to the public and, and that we're seeing the, between the, the the role between the brain and the gut. People would always ask, so it's important to ask it when chatting about obesity, is willpower then? Because obviously mm. uh, people who have obesity, there is a perception that potentially they have less willpower than, than someone else. That's not necessarily the case.
3: You're correct. And, you know, this idea is not a new idea. If you go back to the seven mortal sins, you will remember that one of them is gluttony and the other one is sloth. And of course, the definition of sin is that it is a willful act. So certainly from a European psyche point of view, since the Middle Ages, we have been thinking that obesity, gluttony and sloth, you know, are willful acts. And hence, what we need to do is just try a little bit harder. That's why people have been told, you know, all you have to do is eat less and move more. So. If that was successful, we wouldn't have the disease of obesity or the epidemic of obesity today because now we understand that it's governed by the middle part of the brain. The same part of the brain that controls your body temperature or the same part of the brain that controls your thirst. And therefore, it's not under volitional control. You and I cannot think ourselves less hungry. Or you can't think yourself more satisfied. You can decide not to put the food in your mouth, but if you do that, you'll just become more hungry. And if you also think about it, you know, what would happen if you have the disease of obesity and you eat less? What will happen is you'll become more hungry. What will happen if you have the disease of obesity and you exercise more? You'll become more hungry. Right? So therefore, those treatments of eat less and move more, if anything, made the disease worse. And that's why you know it didn't work. Now what we do is we give people good nutritional treatments, good exercise treatments, good medications, or good surgical treatments, and we treat the disease. And suddenly it comes under control, it settles down, and therefore people can just get on with the rest of their lives without having to try very hard.
2: That's it for the episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry. You know where we are, at PT on Instagram, realhealth.independence.ie. If you like what you've heard, don't forget, follow and subscribe.